If you have your Bibles, if you'll join me in John chapter 6, and uh, we are going to be walking uh, through verses 16 through 29, and our theme for this morning uh, is informed faith, informed faith. So perhaps you're in the room today, uh, and you have what's called a bucket list. These are, these are things you would love to be able to do. As long as God has gifted you breath in your lungs, you would love to be able to experience, see, and do whatever is on your bucket list. And I got several things, uh, a really, really long list, actually, of things that I'd love to see, do, experience. Uh, and one of those, as random as this sounds, is to compete on The Amazing Race. I don't know if y'all have ever seen the show, familiar with it, but uh, I would love this thought of just teaming up. Uh, and just racing around the world and competing against others and seeing and experiencing all the different cultures and everything. Uh, it would just be, I just think, so fun. A matter of fact, our church planting partner, Jonathan Howard, who's planting in Cincinnati, that we're partnering with about 15 years ago, we were this close to, to auditioning together to go on the amazing race. But it didn't work out, but maybe one day, right? But, but it's, it's an amazing, it's an amazing really adventure. And if you're familiar with the show, uh, basically teams race each other around the world. They're completing challenges and at the end of each leg of the, the challenge, there's a mat and everybody's racing to the mat. And typically the last one to get to the mat, you're out, you're eliminated from the race. And so my wife and I were watching an older episode last week or week before, and it gets down to this home stretch. And, and, uh, and so you got several teams basically in that last little bit racing to the mat and they're coming in from different places. And you had this one team that, that just didn't know where to go. They were, they were confused, they were lost. And so they went to locals and they're seeking help from the locals. And they're kind of in their kind of broken English, wherever they were in the world, uh, they're giving them directions on where to go. The problem was they directed them in the opposite direction of where they're needing to go. And so long story short, uh, because they got misinformation, they got misinformation or they understood the information wrongly. They were the last one to the mat and they were eliminated from the race. Now, I think all of us understand and know how vitally important it is to have the right information. It is essential to have trustworthy, right information, especially as it relates to our, our ability to be forgiven for, of our sin, to have a right relationship with God, to experience this gift of eternal life that we, that we as believers have that blessed assurance about. And it's also about the day-to-day, the day-to-day thriving in life. We need that right information. And so if there's a main idea of our text this morning, it's that true saving faith is a faith that is centered on Christ. It's centered on Christ. And through our text, Jesus, in his grace and his love and in his care, both continuing to reveal his nature and personhood to the disciples, but also to the world who's seeking after him, that only by placing your faith in him can one have life. And so a little context around where we're jumping in is that Jesus just performed an incredible miracle. This miracle of what's known as the feeding of the 5,000, this miracle is seen in each of the four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all write about 
this miracle. And, and the Bible says there were 5,000 men. So by the time you factor in spouses, children, we're literally talking about Jesus multiplying five loaves of, of bread and two fish, feeding as many as 15 to possibly as many as 20,000 people. I mean, imagine yourself being one of the disciples and having a front row seat to what just took place. And so before we get into verse 16, I want us to read verse 15. And here's what John 6, 15 says. This is right after the miracle. The Bible says, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him, speaking of Christ, to take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Now, the reason there were multitudes and thousands upon thousands of people on, in a Galilean hillside is because it's Passover. We learned that in the earlier part of chapter six. So you have the highways and byways are full of people making their way towards Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. And so they're all there. And when they're a part of this miracle, they are seeing their moment that they are long awaiting the Messiah. They are perhaps hoping that Jesus is the Messiah that they've been anxiously awaiting for. Just look at what his hands did. And so the Bible says that they actually were going to take him by force and make him king on the spot. Why? Because they were sick and tired of living under Roman rule. They were no longer wanting to live under the tyranny of Rome. They want to flip the tyranny of Rome on its head. Here is Jesus. Let's make him king. Let's go uh, let's go take over and reestablish ourselves as the ruling class of this land. He was there going to be their conquering King, but here's, here's what's important is to see that in this stage of redemptive history, Jesus Christ absolutely is the conquering King that there will be a day that every single one of us and every single person that has breathed the breath of life. The Bible says that every, every, knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. It's coming. It's coming. He is the conquering King. But in this stage of redemptive history, he is the conquering King, but he first has come to be the suffering servant, not to free the people from the tyranny of Rome, but to free the people from the tyranny of their sin, to free them from their sin so that we could be free. Jesus was not there to be their political front man as they take over Rome. He came to be the suffering servant and to lay down his life. And so Jesus, no doubt, is seeing the revolution in their eyes and they're trying to grab a hold of him as king. And so Jesus withdraws and he grabs his disciples. And in verse 16, the Bible says that when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea. They got into a boat and they started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark and Jesus had not yet come to them. So Matthew's gospel over Matthew 14, the Bible says about this same account that Jesus made them get in the boat. Jesus compelled them to get in the boat. And so Jesus is compelling, making them get in this boat and he is going to send them across. But I imagine the disciples, and I don't know for sure, but the disciples are probably like, they're having mixed emotions right now because they just saw Jesus perform an amazing miracle. 
Like it is very possible that like the disciples are maybe like high-fiving and, and chest bumping and they're like the world, finally the world sees who Jesus is. They, they see that, that he is the Messiah and they're on what we would call as believers, they are on a spiritual high. Like they are just, they are there. They are physically on a mountaintop. They are spiritually on a mountaintop. But my, 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 how quickly things can change. How you can go so quickly from a mountaintop experience to a valley low experience. It can happen and you've experienced it. You've lived it. We all have. How you can go from a spiritual high moment to a low moment with just a phone call, just a text, just a word from someone who knows you need to hear this. And all of a sudden, everything changes. And we experience that moments of victory, moments of victory in our spiritual lives. This may look a lot of different ways. This may look like you experiencing the power of God and the grace of God as you have victory over temptation in your life. And you experience that victory. You give glory to God. It's all because of him. And so you're kind of walking in this fullness of the grace of God. It might be that you, by God's grace and power, spirit, that you shared your faith with somebody that God has been laying on your heart for so long. You shared the love of Jesus and the good news about Jesus. And maybe they were receptive and you're like, you're like on a spiritual high. It might be that you go on a mission trip and, and you're allowed to, you, you have a front row seat to see God working in a powerful way in another context, another place. And, and you're just kind of all in on mission. And then you come back home and you're, you're ready to knock on every person's door on your street and in the city to tell them about the love of Jesus. And you're just on this, you're on this spiritual high. You're on the spiritual mountaintop. And that's where the disciples are. But all of a sudden, they are about to experience a valley low moment. And this is what we see in the text. An observation, our first observation is that in this life, the believer will experience moments of victory on the mountain and moments of challenge in the valley. But God is present and faithful through it all. I think it helps us to be reminded Jesus is the one who compelled them to get in that boat. Jesus is the one who made them get in the boat. They have no idea what they're about to experience for the next hour upon hour upon hour, but Jesus knows exactly what they're going to experience the next hour upon hour and hour. Why? Because a major storm is coming. And he places them in the boat and he sends them out. In verse 18, the Bible says the sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. So again, the disciples are on a spiritual and physical mountaintop. And now they are going to, and, and honestly, in geography speaking, one of the lowest points on the planet. Because the Sea of Galilee is located on what's called the Jordan Rift Valley. If you've ever had an opportunity to be there or, or see it, the Sea of Galilee sits about 700 foot below sea level and it's surrounded by hills and even mountains that are as high as almost 2,000 feet. 
And so you almost have this bowl like that the Sea of Galilee sits under. I brought a couple pictures just to show you. So this is just a picture looking towards the east on the Sea of Galilee. The, the Sea of Galilee is about eight miles wide, about 13 miles long. And so looking across and you kind of see those hills, that's known as the Golan Heights. It, it kind of races down or, or is formed around the eastern uh, edge of the Sea of Galilee. But then there's another picture I want you to see, and it's on the northern end. You can see this, the shoreline kind of on the bottom left of the picture, but look at those mountains. I mean, it, it's, it's, it is majestic. It is beautiful. It is incredible. But what happens is when that cool air comes from the Mediterranean and it jumps up across those mountains and it sweeps down and it picks up that warmer air on the Sea of Galilee, you have all the ingredients in the world for a fierce storm. That's why it can happen so quick. And so this storm is, is coming. And in verse 19, the Bible says that when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat and they were frightened. Which I almost read it and I'm feeling the understatement. <laughs> I mean, imagine you're rowing in the middle of the dark. And all of a sudden, Jesus is walking toward them. Mark's gospel over Mark chapter six. He tells us what time it is. He says it's during the fourth watch of the night. And according to that timetable, that means it's somewhere between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. Which means when the disciples shoved off of shore and they began their journey, they've now been rowing for almost eight hours. And they're in the dark and the waves are pummeling them. They are exhausted. They are weary. I'm imagining even though you got seven fishermen around, like the, your bearings are off and you're wondering like what in the world is going on? And they were frightened. They were frightened, but they were even more frightened than the storm when the creator is walking toward their way. And by the way, this is the same event. John's gospel doesn't go into it, but this is the same event where Peter walked on water just for that little bit. Now the wind and the waves obeyed the word of Jesus when he instructed it to be still. There's such power and authority in the words of Jesus. But look at verse 20. But he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. It is I, do not be afraid. And then they were glad to take him in the boat. And immediately the boat was at, at the land to which they were going. And Jesus, in his gracious, loving way, calms their fears and lets them know to not be afraid. What an encouraging word. And I love this. They gladly took him in the boat, which I think is another understatement. <laughs> I think they're like, Jesus, get, you know, come in, get in. And like, they are, they are glad. Why? Because Jesus is present. They understand, they've seen his authority, they've seen his power. They're still learning, they're still growing, but they know the difference maker is that God is with them. And I love this passage because I think it's so encouraging for the believer because this is real life. Real life isn't so much us in a boat paddling for hours on the Sea of Galilee, but I think all of us could probably relate to the fact of feeling that you have been rowing for hours. You feel like the waves of life just keep crashing against you and crashing against you. 
that this storm and the struggle and the challenge, they're all real parts of this life and they make for really, really long nights. The disciples are in a really, really long night, but here is some encouraging words. Storms do not last forever. By the way, a storm swept through last night. I don't know if y'all heard those booms, but we all did. But what happened? It passed. Storms pass. They're going to pass. They don't last forever. But what they understood was something that possibly they could not have understood any other way. That God desired to reveal to them his faithfulness and his presence and his authority and his power and his comfort. And they learned a discipleship lesson that may have come no other way. There's a, this earlier this week, I was, I was kind of prayerfully uh, preparing for this passage, but I, I was reading through some of the Psalms and I want to read real quick a Psalm of David. It's over in Psalm chapter 25 and I want to read two verses. And this is David writing again from the Old Testament, King David. He says this in Psalm 25, verse four and five. Listen to David's desire. He says this, make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me for you are the God of my salvation and for you I wait all the day long. That is a bold and courageous prayer. That is not, at least if I missed it, that's not what the disciples prayed before they got on the boat, but that's exactly what they are experiencing. They are experiencing the Lord teaching them something that perhaps could come no other way. And so I say that to encourage all of us, don't grow weary in doing good. In due time, the harvest will come. Storms don't last forever. They, they pass. I love what Jesus says in John 16, 33. He says, I have said these things to you that in me, you may have peace in this world. You will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. And the Bible says immediately, they're right where God told them that they were gonna go. They made it. God will be faithful to carry you through and to carry you on. And so here they are, they're in Capernaum. They landed. And in verse 22, the Bible says, the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. And so when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boat and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. So they're, they're like, okay, there was a boat here. The disciples got in that boat. The boat's not there anymore. Jesus never got in the boat. He's not here anymore. You got people from Tiberias who are coming over, no doubt, because word is traveling fast. Jesus isn't there. I don't, maybe they heard Jesus say they're going to Capernaum. Maybe they knew that was Jesus's home base for earthly ministry, but they, they are now on their way to Capernaum and they're seeking Jesus. And in verse 25, the Bible says, when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? 
And Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves and the fish. He said, like, why are you there? And Jesus, in grace and truth, he's confronting them. He's confronting them on their motivation, their motivation for seeking him. And in the next few verses, we're going to see three different focuses of what faith in God can become. And I want us to hear these as we walk through it and think about which one best describes us. But Jesus is confronting them. And the first one we see is in their self-centered faith. They don't want Jesus. They want eggs and bacon. <laughs> they just, they saw, I mean, did you see what he did with the bread and the fish? And Jesus calls them out. He's like, you, you're just, you're just coming after me because you want your belly full again. They are so hungering for the physical. They're hungering for what's temporary. And Jesus is confronting them in that. Leon Moore says they were moved not by full hearts, but by full bellies. He's exposing why they're after him. They're after what his hands can do, the things he can do, not for himself. And it's amazing. Physical hunger is real, isn't it? I, I'm not trying to provoke anything, but your stomach might be letting you know right now that it's approaching lunchtime, which is amazing that God made our stomachs to let us know that. It's, it's amazing. Like God's creation never seeks to just not blow me away, astound me. But we often organize our lives around meals. I, I mean, right now we got a, a, a little one uh, about 10 months old. And I feel like our lives revolve around his eating. <laughs> like, I mean, it's, it's locked in. I mean, it is 8, 12, 4, and 7.30. Like, and if it's a minute or two earlier, a minute too late, like you've missed the window. Like we are, we are planning our days around when Judah Ridge needs to eat. Like that's how we are living our life. And we, we can do that as well. But listen to what Matt Carter says. He says it this way. He says, consider how much time, effort, and energy that you put into making sure your physical hunger is met. You get up in the morning and the first thing you think about is what you're going to eat or drink. Throughout the day, we're running here and there for lunch or dinner. We're spending time making food or we're heading to the store for more groceries. We make sure we don't go hungry. Compare that to how much time and energy and effort we put into making sure our spiritual hunger is met. Do you think about it? Do we give any thought to what sustains our spiritual lives, what nourishes our souls? Even when we attend church, are we thinking about anything other than what we want or what we like? And what he's painting is this picture of self-centered faith, self-serving faith. They may not say it this way, but the way it's lived out is I am the Lord and God serves me. And this is how they are going about living their lives. If God does something I don't like, I'm out. If he doesn't operate the way that I think he should operate, I'm out. And by the way, by verse 66 of this chapter, you will see where there were thousands upon thousands that were following him initially by verse 66, because of what he says in grace and truth, the Bible says that many turned and walked away because his sayings, his sayings were truth that cut to the heart. C.S. Lewis says, I can't find a cup of tea that's big enough 
or a book that long that's long enough. Just you just that physical urge, that physical desire for the temporary. But if our faith is focused more on what he can fix, it's focused on how he can serve me, then is focused on him and for what he has done and graciously for us, then our faith is misinformed. It's misinformed faith. But he doesn't just stop with the self-centered faith. Jesus now addresses works-centered faith. In verse 27, the Bible says, Do not work for the, for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. And then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? So Jesus is helping them. He's revealing his nature. He's revealing who he is. He is revealing that it is through him and only through him can can someone be forgiven of their sin and given life and life to the full, eternal life. He's the only way. But I want to look one more time at verse 27. Don't work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. Listen to this, which the Son of Man will give. That he gives, in other words, salvation, gift of forgiveness. Like this isn't something that is earned. It's something that God gives. It's a free gift. And for these Jewish miracle seekers, that is just totally like messing with their heads. Because their whole upbringing, their relationship with God has been based on what they do. It's been based on on a faith relationship based on works-based righteousness. That their ticket to heaven is on doing religious works, doing religious things. And this was common through the Bible. If you're familiar with the passage of the rich young ruler in Matthew 19, verse 16, the Bible says, Behold, a man came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? What is the good thing? What's the good thing that I got to do? What's the work that I have to do? Over in Luke chapter 10, verse 25, the Bible says, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And so there was this common Jewish conviction that eternal life came through, through doing. But the same thing is true today. The same thing is true today. If you go out and you just decide to do like, I'm just going to do some anonymous walk up. How do you get to heaven conversations? Most likely, by and large, people who will have that conversation with you will land somewhere in the neighborhood of to, to do good, to be good. So in other words, that their goodness would outweigh their wrongness or they try hard and they hope it all works out and that somehow it is by doing that that will somehow allow them to spend eternity in heaven. And one of my mentors gave me this great question and I think it's a great question for us to hold on to as we walk through that because if you, as you interact with people and that may be your the kind of the way you process faith. It's through works. It's through work-based. The question then becomes, well, how good is good enough? 
Because every single one of us have different standards of goodness. I mean, if I were to ask my kids, like, so how good do you have to be? You're going to get one answer. If I go to, um, you know, to a CEO, uh, owner of a business or whatever, and I say, well, well, like, so how good do you have to be? Like, at what point it all breaks down? Because if the Bible is true and it is, and we believe it with all our hearts, there is one standard of goodness and it is God. And he is holy. He is perfect. He is righteous. And all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so if he is the standard on our best day, it still falls short. And so they were all wrapped up and what do I got to do? What do I got to do when the reality is, and here's the good news, the work has been done. The work has been done. And so a self-centered faith is misinformed faith. A works-centered faith is a misinformed faith. And then Jesus in verse 29, in his grace and truth, he communicates what rightly informed faith is. And that is Christ-centered faith. Faith that is built on nothing less than Jesus Christ, his blood and his righteousness. Like that's, that is the, the center of, of life, giving life eternal faith. Jesus says in verse 29, he answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in him who he has sent. The work is belief. The work is trust. Here is incredibly good news for a sinful world. Forgiveness is a free gift. Peace with God is a free gift. Over in Colossians chapter one, Paul tells us that there is a transfer that happens when you place your faith and trust in Christ. He says you've been transferred from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of God's beloved son. It comes at a free gift. Everlasting life is a free gift and it is free to us because the price has already been paid. The price was paid for through Christ's work on the cross, what he accomplished. Paul in Ephesians chapter two, he says, salvation comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Salvation is not through work, but through believing in the finished work of Jesus. Believe that is it. That's it. But when you truly believe something, when you truly believe the gospel, it changes everything. It changes everything. So it is a free gift, but it comes through faith and true faith changes a believer by God's grace from the inside out. And so we see this gift of eternal life that God gives only through himself by believing around somewhere in the neighborhood of 240 ish times. The word believe is used in the new Testament. John between his gospel and his letters there at the end of the new Testament says it about a hundred times. It's the whole reason he wrote this gospel account. He tells us over towards the tail end of, of John chapter uh, or John chapter 20. He's, he's, he says, uh, that you may know that Jesus Christ is, that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God. And that by believing you will have life in his name by believing, by believing, by believing. So that's it. You are placing your full weight and trust. It is, it is, it is to believe is to, to, 
to, to, to place your complete self in and believe with all of your heart. And so for so many, and in our world, faith can be this self-serving faith. And that, that's misinformed faith. That's not true saving faith. Like, I'm Lord and God serves me. That is, that is not true saving faith. That's misinformed faith. That is running up to the local help and they sending, they're sending you in the opposite direction from where home base is. Some believe in that work-centered faith. And honestly, it, even believers, we can kind of drift that way, right? We can make it. We can want to make it about doing all the things and getting all the work in, but the work has been done. Jesus is clear. Here's the work by believing in me. And when you believe in him, placing your full weight and trust in him and him alone, that true belief changes everything about everything about your lives. And so when we began this passage, we started on a mountaintop physically and spiritually. We spent a little time in the dark at sea with waves crashing in. And it could be that you are in the room today or you are listening in online and you are relating with that testimony of the disciples. You feel like you have been rowing and rowing and rowing and it is hard to make anything out around you and the waves just continue to crash and crash and crash again. But here is the encouragement. Storms do not last forever. God is not distant. He is present. He is faithful. Storms do pass and he will be faithful to get you exactly where he wants you to be. They immediately were in Capernaum. I love that. Instantly they were there. They were there. So don't grow weary believer. Don't grow weary in your struggle because that struggle will pass. But God's faithfulness endures for all generations. And as we examine both of these kind of faith-centered uh, modes that people can operate in, self-centered faith is a dead-end road and it is misinformed. Works-based, it sounds and can even feel like that makes sense, but the reality is, is God is holy. And so what is goodness against the backdrop of holiness? That's misinformed faith. Jesus informs rightly, where squarely to place your faith and faith alone. And that is in him and his finished work on the cross, his death, his burial, his resurrection. So if you're here and you don't have a relationship with King Jesus, he is pursuing that relationship. And you don't have to go and clean yourself up to make yourself suitable to be accepted by him. He pursues you and accepts you where you are and changes you from the inside out by his grace and his care in the work of his spirit. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. God, what a powerful historical event that we had the blessing to walk through today. There's so much there. There's so much there. And so, Father, for my brothers and sisters in the room, those who are believers in the Lord Jesus, God, uh, we can move so quickly from the mountaintop to the valley. 
Like we, we, we mentioned, it can happen in a text. It can happen in a call. It can look like just on our way as we're going about our day. And then all of a sudden we find ourselves in a place of challenge and struggle. But God, you are faithful. And though, though we have our timetable on how and when you should work and the timing in which you do it, God. May we as believers find ourselves yielded to you, trusting you. God, trusting in your grace and your care and your love. That God, for these disciples, it was the fourth watch. So God, may you find us faithful to trust in you with all of our hearts, knowing that you will be faithful to lead and guide and direct and that the storm will not last forever. And Father, I pray that whatever, wherever we find ourselves placing our faith and trust, or even when our faith is centered, that we would be wise and discerning, that your Holy Spirit would be the great revealer, that God, our faith in you does not revolve around us. Our faith revolves around you, that it is not based on our ability to get it right and to do it right and that our good outweighs our bad. That is misinformed faith. But rather, God, in your grace and your love, you're communicating yourself. Believe in me. Your life, your death, your burial, your resurrection. It is through you and through you alone that there is forgiveness of sin, peace with God, and life and life to the, to the full in the here and now, and in the forever and eternity. So God, I pray if there's any lost soul, God, that today would be the day where they own their sin, repent of their sin, and trust in you and you alone for salvation. God, may you do a work and find us responsive in however you are leading us today. And may we trust you, even like Peter, to take that step out of the boat and to be obedient to your word. God, we love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. I want to invite you to stand with me. We'll have pastors here who would love to pray over you. If you're here and you would, you would desire somebody to pray over you, the altar is always open to, to pray and just that we would be responsive to however the Lord is leading our hearts this morning.